0: Uh, one of the popular claims that is laid against the the Jewish people and the and their possession of the land be it in the 15th century BC with the conquest under Joshua or be it the 19th and 20th century uh, Zionist movement and the rebirth of the modern state of Israel uh, is the claim that it's just an unjust land grab just another unjust land grab or power grab so some folks will actually call it a colonialism acquiring control over another country by occupying it with settlers and then exploiting it or oppressing the indigenous uh, population and some would claim that Israel's possession of the land is also imperialism Uh, One country extending their power and influence over another through diplomacy or military force. And when it comes to the conquest of Israel under Joshua, many, you've probably heard them object, say things like, how could God destroy the Canaanites? Wasn't that genocide? Wasn't that imperialism? How could God be so mean? I could never worship or serve a god like that and so uh, those are the thoughts that i want us to wrap our minds around this morning as we continue this series on the subject of the land of israel this is part four i think and all the sermon notes are out there in the foyer if you want some more uh, or they're online too but if you want to go over those messages as well Um, and so we're asking the question Is the conquest of the land or even the more recent Zionist movement just another land to grab? Is this this colonialism? Is it imperialism? Is it an apartheid state? Is it some sort of racist, segregated state? And we're going to answer those questions today from Scripture. Our goal being to think biblically about the land of Israel because we all know there's a lot of stuff out there that is not biblical that's being shared in the media and social media that sort of thing so by way of review let's just let's just uh let's go over this real quick where we've been first we asked whose land is it anyway and we came away with the answer that god promised the land to abraham and his descendants the jews forever Forever. It's everlasting. God confirmed that promise with a covenant. He ratified it with a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And then, so it's up to God alone to keep it. It's not up to Abraham. And then, second, we ask the question why did God choose this land? I mean, of all the places in the world, why this little strip of land? Well, the answer to that was because Israel was to be a godly influence on a wicked world. They were to be a righteous nation with a righteous law, and their influence was going to be possible uh, by the way that God placed them in the most strategic spot on the international highway of the ancient world, in this little land bridge between the three continents. And uh, thus, the people and the land are linked together in the purposes of God. And then we asked the question if God promised the land to the Jewish people, why did they rarely dwell securely in the land? Why do they rarely dwell securely in the land? Why is there never any peace in the Middle East and for Israel? And reason number one we saw was that uh, there is ancient spiritual animosity over the land between the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael becoming the Arab nation and Islam, and then Isaac becoming the Jewish people. And Judaism and Christianity the descendant of promise. And and Ishmael was not. And then reason number two was that the land always belongs to the Jews, but they entered into this Mosaic covenant with God and, and it has conditions to it. It's a conditional bilateral covenant and disobedience to that covenant would bring exile from the land. So... They understood going into that covenant deuteronomy twenty seven and twenty eight and thirty that's that portion of scripture that to obey meant they would be established in the land they would be secure and rooted there, but to disobey would bring scattering, exile, dispersion to the to the ends of the earth to different nations, and so that's that's where we 're at we see in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the observable and patternable divine program of God for Israel. This is their history right here in a nutshell. The first uh, dispersion among the nations and ceaseless rest for their feet as a result of disobedience. And because they have been dispersed, what do they find among the nations? They often find persecution. And so God must preserve Them, Even though they're dispersed, God says, I will preserve you. I won't destroy you completely because I have a covenant with you. And so he preserves them out of his covenant faithfulness. And uh, somehow, often through providential means of Gentile rulers, uh, the Jews are allowed to return to the land. And so that would be followed by restoration. God restores them to the land. He gathers them from the nations where they have been scattered And then they are reconciled, fully reconciled with God. God gives them a new heart to joyfully fear Him and obey Him. And and that's our review. That's where we've been. That's where we left off in the storyline of the land. We're just working our way chronologically through the Bible. And right now we come to uh, uh, the, the conquest of the land. Deuteronomy 27 through 30 is right before they enter the land, remember? And they reaffirm that covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, they hear the law again, and they say, "This we're going to do this thing. We're going to go into the land, we're going to possess it, and we're going to keep the law. And uh, so that's where we're at. Right before they enter the land, the land of Canaan, or Israel at this time, uh, you should know, was occupied by a conglomeration of peoples. Uh, different tribes that uh, descended from Canaan, the son of Ham, the Son of Noah, and they settled this area that is that is called Canaan. Uh, Genesis ten says that uh, they settled like from from Tyre uh, to Gaza to Sodom, so basically way up here, Phoenician coastline Tyre all the way down to Gaza down to the you know the Sodom and Gomorrah at the south end of the dead sea it's basically that 's the area that 's defined as the area where the the descendants of Canaan settled and uh, Basically, that entire area on the, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean area, that whole area is just called the Levant, which means raised, raised up. And in Genesis 15, 19 through 21, God said the land was occupied by the Kenite, the Kenazite, the Can- Kadmonite, the Hittite, Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. And contrary to popular belief, there were no termites among them. That theory actually arose due to the ceaseless, unamusing dad jokes from pulpits across America. But even though the Canaanites are considered one of the tribes among the people in the land, they're also all considered Canaanites because they all descended from Canaan. And uh, they were not a unified Canaanite nation; they were not a national people in the way that Israel would be. These were uh, different, warring tribes. Basically, uh, this is a land that, besides the Jewish people, ha- has always been ruled by foreign imperialistic nations or empires like Egypt or Babylon. So the Canaanites they would have viewed themselves as independent city states like they have their city right like Jericho or Megiddo or Lachish and then they and then they have the territory around it and each city state has its own king or ruler but yet that king or ruler they weren't very big right so they would they would be subjugated to someone like pharaoh of Egypt or Assyria or Babylon so they would be vassal kings their kings but they're also vassal kings in that they're subjugated to, or they owe allegiance to a more powerful king or empire. So that's kind of the the context that you're looking at here. And Numbers 13, remember, when the 12 spies come back with a report from the land, they say that the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And and we know from archaeology today uncovering their cities that they were not lying. They might not seem large to us, but they were back then. And uh, the cities were heavily fortified, sometimes triple-walled with thick, elevated walls, walls that you have to build siege ramps against and, and siege for years just to just to wear them down and break into these cities. Uh, just, just think about uh, Megiddo there. You can see a picture of it. Uh, They're massive gates, triple gates fold, like triple deep. And then you've got like, you know, Jericho at the bottom there with uh, towers and you know how it had massive walls. It had walls so big that God himself had to bring it down. I mean, and it's amazing. He brought those walls down in an instant when a city like that should have taken years of siege works to bring down. And if, think about it, Israel, I mean, if, if, if God could bring down Jericho in an instant like that without their help, what did they have to worry about? I mean, they could take possession of the land. All they had to do was t- trust God and get going, and they did in 1406 B.C. So God called Abraham in 2091 B.C. The Exodus occurs in 1446 B.C., and then in 1406, 400 years later, the Israelites under Joshua's leadership, begin a seven-year conquest of the land. And what a lot of people want to say, again, is, well, what about the Canaanites? Uh, How could God destroy the Canaanites? How could God be so mean? It's a frequent objection in the apologetical world. It's just one of the questions people bring up that people think about, and rightly so. And to answer that, we're going to come back again to Genesis 15, 16. We have come back here every single week. It's just such an important passage. This is when God promised the land to Abraham and his descendants. He says, you guys, you, your descendants, are going to be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years in Egypt. Remember, Jacob goes down to Egypt as a family. 400 years, they come out as a nation. And he said, afterwards, in the fourth generation, 400 years later, you're going to return here to the land of Canaan, your descendants are, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. You don't want to miss that phrase when it comes to understanding God's purposes in the conquest of Israel. The iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. And what we know about the Amorites... Uh, the most powerful tribe among the Canaanites, and a term that, that can be used to refer to all the Canaanites, it's just one of those terms, it can be used to refer to all the Canaanites in general too, but what we know about them is that they were exceedingly wicked and an idolatrous people. Their wickedness and their idolatry went hand in hand, right? Their worship of false gods, they had a pantheon of gods no doubt demonically inspired, that led them to do unthinkably base and abhorrent worship rituals. Even their gods were godless. Their gods were tyrants who venerated sex, war, and personal prosperity. These fertility cults led to sexual promiscuity and perversion, as well as child sacrifice to gods like Molech, social oppression, and violence. And this is noted both by Scripture, by extra-biblical texts, and by the archaeology. Merrill F. Unger said that these Canaanite cults were utterly immoral, decadent, and corrupt, dangerously contaminating and thoroughly justifying the divine command to destroy their devotees. You should have received in your, your emails yesterday a link to a video that I sent you by the archaeologist Joel Kramer. Uh, in it, he covers the 1902 archaeological excavation of a Canaanite high place by R.A. McAllister, at Gezer. This is in the Amorite hill country between Tel Aviv on the coast and Jerusalem. And uh, in his excavation report titled The Iniquity of the Amorite uh, he reveals how at this high place he uncovered several massive stones which turned out to be sacred pillars. Have you ever heard of those in the Bible? Sacred stones, sacred pillars and An altar, and around the feet of the pillars, McAllister uncovered the skeletal remains of burned infants deposited in large jars, and he also found a pit with a great number of human bones in a confused heap, including a six or seven year old girl who had been sawed in two, and the skull of two other girls who had been decapitated. They know that because there's still some of the vertebrae, but not all of it. As they've been decapitated. And this this is a high place of the Amorites, as you see described in the Bible. Of course, if you go to visit this place today, and you read the the little tourist information thing, the sign, you're not going to read that. You're going to read something much more politically correct. But this is the reality of what the Canaanites were like. This was their worship. They sacrificed their children to these gods. God's like Moloch. I can't imagine. I have a seven-year-old daughter myself. I can't imagine that. Unbelievable. It's also why the law commanded Israel not to worship the gods of the Canaanites. In Deuteronomy twelve twenty-nine 29-31, God said, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you're going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you're not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I may do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods." In Leviticus 18:24 through 28 after speaking of child sacrifice, immorality, homosexuality, and even bestiality, God says this to Israel, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants as for you you're to keep my statutes and judgments and you shall not do any of these abominations neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you so much for being a apartheid state even back then right they would have sojourners and aliens among them But for the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out, should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. One more in Deuteronomy 9.4, God says, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. So the biblical and extra-biblical evidence that we see is clear that the social and moral conditions of the Canaanite culture were incredibly corrupt, entirely base, if we can still use that word. As one man said, if we take all the texts seriously, As part of God's own explanation for the events that unfold in the book of Joshua, we cannot avoid their implications. The conquest was not human genocide. It was divine judgment. And that's purpose number one for the conquest of the land. The conquest of the land was the just judgment of God. This was not God being mean. This was God being just. It was God being just. He was judging a morally reprehensible culture. Think about it. How many times have you heard someone say that they will believe in God or they'll, they'll serve God? They won't believe in God. They won't serve God because he's apathetic. Because he doesn't do anything about the evil in the world. He won't deal with the evil people in the world. Well, well, here's a time and place where God does that, he wipes out an evil people, and people are shocked. And they say, how could God do that? How could God be so mean? I, just, I think it just goes to show you that if someone doesn't want to believe, they won't. It's not that they don't have the answers, it's that they don't want to submit to God. You can't satisfy them. And so this clearly wasn't a land grab. It wasn't genocide of an innocent, targeted people group. It was divine judgment. And as Genesis 15, 16 states, God has been keeping tabs on that culture's increasing wickedness. And God said, now's the time. That's enough. Too late for Repentance. And he uses the nation of Israel, another nation, to bring his judgment because their judgment was due. And what's been unsettling to me this week to focus on this whole week is just looking around at our own culture. Watching the commercials during a football game. Seeing men dressed up as ladies and in makeup commercials. thinking we are right on the heels of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or looking at the Canaanites, thinking about the Canaanites and this child sacrifice, thinking, what's the difference between America and them? In our own abortion culture, right, we slice and dice up babies all the time. We saw them in half before they are even born. We're just more complex at it. Thank God that he's patient. Amen? Look at how long God waited to judge these people. 400 years he waited on them. Four centuries God put up with a child-sacrificing, a lewd culture. 400 years. He was incredibly patient, just as He was patient in the days of Noah before the flood, just as He was with Nineveh, just as He was with Israel when they fell into idolatry, and just as He is with us today. He's patient. 2 Peter 3.9 says, because He doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He gives people time to repent, but then there's always a moment where He says enough, and He brings His wrath, And, and, and that day of wrath... The great day of His wrath is coming, and you want to be ready for it. The only way you can be ready for it to escape God's wrath is by trusting in the one who took His wrath for you. That's Jesus Christ. So, judgment's one purpose. Is there another? Yeah, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we asked why this land. Purpose number two was that the conquest of the land was an intentional evangelization of the world. So, by establishing this supernaturally saved, right? Everybody, everybody and their dog heard about what happened with Israel. You know, just, I, he put down the greatest empire in the world through the 10 plagues and the Red Sea crossing. Nations were trembling at the thought of Israel. Everybody and their dog heard about that, and and so they're watching this supernaturally saved and guided people. God's glory cloud is dwelling among them, and they're all watching this, wondering what's going to happen. Well, he takes them and puts them at the center of the world with the most righteous laws you can imagine to reach the world. He puts them there at this little land bridge that the whole world has to travel through for commerce, commerce, and, and trade and, and, and all of that, you know, military campaigns, all of that. They, people were forced to travel through this land, and when they did, they heard about the one true God. They heard about his law and how he's righteous, and they would hear about their own sins so that they, they would turn to this God and be saved from his judgment, so that his judgment wouldn't fall on them. So it's a it's a it's a marvelous plan that God had, and and one of the things we see, uh, one thing we see in his dealings with Israel uh, is that he's no respecter of persons, is he? God chose them, but it wasn't because they were some great obedient nation. He chose them to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness with a stubborn people. Think about that, when you think that God's done with Israel because they're stubborn. He chose them because they were stubborn to demonstrate how faithful he is. we're all stubborn too, (laughs) right? So praise God for his faithfulness to us in Christ. But later on, God's going to use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to bring judgment on the Jews when they become entrenched in those same pagan worship rituals. So let's continue the timeline. Here we see in 1051 to 1011 BC, we see the monarchy begins under Saul. They want a king, so God gives them a human king. Uh, His capital is in Gibeah, after Saul, the monarchy shifts goes to David, uh, ten eleven to nine seventy one B.C. and David becomes king of Israel. He conquers. When he becomes king, he conquers uh, Jebus, the city of Jebus, which becomes the city of David, which becomes Jerusalem. Yeah, so uh, that's what he makes his capital. Why Jerusalem, though? Glad you asked. For one, it has access to water, uh, even up in that hill country, up on the ridge, on the ridge route. Uh, There's the Gihon Gihon Spring there with Hezekiah's tunnel connected to it. You can still walk through it this day, it's still putting out water. But they had the spring there. By the way, let me show you this map. Uh, You've got right here, this is the city of David, right here. This is where it would have been. You have a valley on both sides. Uh, this would be, you know, the whole Jerusalem today, basically, and you've got a valley, Kidron Valley over here, Mount of Olives here, Central Valley, the Hinnom Valley. This is where a lot of this Hinnom Valley—that's that's the metaphor for hell Jesus used. The Hinnom, the the Valley of Hinnom. This is where refuse was burned and trash, and this is where babies were sacrificed as well. And uh, this is uh, this is the Temple Mount. And uh, this is the western hill, eastern hill here, Temple Mount. So this is the old city. Solomon, uh, when he com- becomes king, he, he, he builds the Temple Mount. Here's Mount Moriah, and uh, this is where he built the temple up here. So he expanded the city a little bit, and then it grew even more later on. But, uh, so you have this, this, this spring there. You've got another spring co- close by. This is a central lo- location on the internal ridge route. I mean, the ridge route runs right through here. And so it's right off of that, and uh it's on the border of Benjamin and judah, which which would promote unity. It's not you know like in anyone's tribal territory necessarily it's right on the the, the border and uh it's it's further north than Hebron as well, so uh, Hebron wouldn't have been acceptable and uh so Lots of reasons why they chose this place. You know, it's got the hills, it's got the valleys on 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 the sides. It's just highly defensible, a uh, choice location. But it's an important city, isn't it? Uh, this is where God chooses to dwell. Quite literally, through His Shekinah glory presence. I mean, He didn't choose. The city of Samaria, he didn't choose Gibeah like Saul chose or Hebron like Abraham chose or Absalom chose. He didn't choose Shiloh. He ultimately chose Jerusalem. He said in 2 Chronicles 6, Now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. This is where God chose to dwell. Uh, This is called the city of God. It's called the city of the great king. It's where we believe Jesus is going to come back according to the scriptures and rule from his Davidic throne over the nations. There's just so many eschatological end times events that are centered around this city, and many of them involve the nation of Israel, which means they have to be back in the land for those events to unfold. 971 to 931 B.C., that's when David's son Solomon rules. Uh, Israel flourishes under his le- rulership, um, Uh, They become very prosperous. This is like the greatest the kingdom has ever been. Uh, it, It was under Solomon. He possesses almost all of the land that was promised to them, which tells us that if it wasn't, they didn't possess it all, or they didn't possess it all forever, tells you that the fulfillment of that promise is still yet future, right? But he builds the first temple on Mount Moriah, on the northern reaches of the city of David, that's where the Dome of the Rock sits today, a Muslim Islamic site. So uh, then we've got 931 BC. Uh, after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam initiates a series of repressive measures on the people of Israel. And in 922 BC, about a decade later, Jeroboam leads a successful insurrection that severs the kingdom. And you have the 10 tribes in the north, now called Israel. And you got the two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, which are called Judah. So you see Israel and Judah, sometimes referred to in your Bible. And uh, <clears throat> Israel, uh, Jeroboam rejects worship at Jerusalem at this point, and uh, he institutes calf worship in Dan and Bethel at the southern border and at the northern border of their territory to prevent Israelites from going down to Jerusalem to worship. And you can even see uh, the high place at Dan where he set up that calf today. But both Israel and Judah would eventually play the harlot with these Canaanite gods. They became more and more tolerant of Canaanite worship until it became blatant and they were worshiping idols in the temple they rebuilt the high places and the altars of the Canaanites that they once destroyed. And they were sacrificing their children. They were practicing witchcraft and divination. They were speaking with dead spirits, that sort of thing. They, they provoked the Lord to anger. And so 2 Kings 16.3 says of King Ahaz of Judah that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Remember, Israel went that direction first. Judah followed suit but it says he even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. 2nd Chronicles 33:9 says of King Manasseh, he misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do get this, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. They grew even worse. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. Here's the thing. They paid no attention. They didn't listen. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks. They bound him with bronze chains, and they took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the god of his fathers and when he prayed to him he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him to Jerusalem to his kingdom and then manasseh knew that the lord was god you see you see in manasseh's life a little picture of what god does with the entire nation god sends them warnings through the prophets They reject those warnings. They do not listen to God's words. They say the prophets are filled with wind. And so God says, I'm going to exile you. And he disperses them. They enter into great distress. And God has to preserve them out of his covenant. And they are restored and then they are reconciled. And that's the pattern. It happened even in Manasseh's life there. And just as God used Israel to judge the Canaanites, so we see God use the Assyrians and the Babylonians as his tool of judgment on Israel. Actually, Isaiah 10.5 says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it, God sent this godless people Assyria against a godless nation Israel and commissioned it against the people of my fury to capture spoils and seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets so what he did with the canaanites he did with israel in jeremiah fifty one twenty, god calls babylon his war club and his weapon of war to shatter nations and destroy kingdoms but after he uses babylon he judges them too so they are repaid for their evil as well but here's the the two main exiles that that we see in the Bible uh, that you hear about. Seven twenty two B.C. the Northern Kingdom of Israel is conquered and exiled by, exiled by the Assyrian Empire, uh, because and they went first, um, hundred and some years first, because they they introduced idolatry first, and so they go first into exile. But Judah did not learn from their. Error. Jeremiah 3 8 says, Israel's treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. So they did not really repent, did they? They saw what happened to Israel, and they didn't heed the warning themselves. 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered and exiled by Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple, is destroyed, marking the end of the first temple period. So it's a sad story, but we know it's not over, right? They go to exile. But because God has a covenant with them, because he won't destroy them completely, he'll bring them back and uh, preserve them, restore them through providential means. And that's what Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra are all about. They return to the land under the leadership of Gentile kings. Why? Because it's the times of the Gentiles. The the kingdom hasn't been reestablished. They're still under the dominion, the domination of Gentiles and Gentile kingdoms. Uh, we see in Esther when the genocidal plot against the Jews is, is turned on its head. We see God preserve them there. God using Gentile kings to, to, uh, to stop that. Then we see King Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1 issue a decree after he defeats Babylon decreeing that all the Jews can return home legally. He just says, all right, y'all can go home now. Because to God, their, their time of judgment was up. That 70 years was up. And it's really neat. We have direct evidence of that decree. We have this something called the Cyrus Cylinder that records that decree, saying, all right, everybody can go home. He was a universalist kind of guy. Everybody can worship whoever they want. You don't have to worship my God. And Jews, go back to the land and worship your God. It's God's providence, right? During the kingdom age, you see a lot of supernatural things happening, right? What do you see after that and even to this day? Providence. Not so much miracles. When Jesus comes, he offers the kingdom. What do you see? Supernatural miracles. Here's the power of the kingdom. It's here. It's present. Take it. But they reject Christ. And what do you see again? Providence. Providence today. That's the main way God is working. And I think that's what Esther teaches us. Uh, God his name isn't even mentioned in that book, but you still see him working and him orchestrating things behind the scenes. And so that's something we've seen even with the, in the last century with the Zionist movement. It's not a land grab. It's not, it's not colonialism. It's not imperialism. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's just God working providentially through Gentile rulers like Great Britain, the United Nations, to get the Jewish people back to their homeland through legal means. And Gentile nations who ruled in their favor because of what? Because of their plight. I mean, they were suffering persecution like crazy. Even before World War I, government-sponsored persecution, pogroms in Russia and and the Holocaust and all of that, everybody saw the need for the Jews to return to their homeland. But uh, history demonstrates that the Jews were the last indigenous people to exercise self-rule in the land. 2,000 years ago. After the exile, remember the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees that you you read about in the Apocrypha? Uh, The Maccabees were the last autonomous rule in Israel. After them, Israel was ruled for 2,000 years by foreign, imperialistic, often Jewish-persecuting empires. Rome, the Byzantines, Arabia, the Crusaders, the Mamluks, the Ottomans, and Britain over the course of 2,000 years. And Michael Rydelnik writes this, Even during the Arabian period, from 636 to 1099, the government was imperial and not related to an indigenous Arab population. The Arabian Empire was always governed, always governed the land as outsiders from imperial capitals in Damascus, Baghdad, and Cairo. And while many ethnic peoples came and went, as did a variety of rulers, the land remained uniquely tied to the Jewish people for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, Jews were always in the land. Sure, most of them were exiled, but there was always a remnant there. And the Jews were always longing to return to their home, which had been laid, had been, it was desolate, it was a swamp, it was a wilderness until they came back. After the, the Ottoman Empire uh, joined the wrong side of the war, right, the British took over the land and, and uh, Jewish persecution was on the rise and Zionist hopes were on the rise, the Jews, with all the persecution in the world, the Jews were longing to return to the land and a lot of people in Britain... Because people were interpreting their Bibles historically and grammatically again, they weren't spiritualizing it, and they saw prophecies about Israel being restored. They said, Let's get these people back in their land. They're not, they're, right? They're going to be destroyed if they remain among the nations. So Great Britain conquers the land, and they issue the Balfour Declaration in 1917, declaring that the Jews can return home, just like Cyrus. Go home, we'll help you get there. Totally legal. They didn't just come and take the land. Their home, actually, in the Balfour Declaration, was described, defined as the whole of historic Palestine, including the Transjordan. <laughs> Way more land than, than, than you see them possess today. And it's, and it's not that the Jews were being favored either. The Balfour's Declaration, as you'll read, also protected against the prejudice of civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities who were in the land. So, again, it's not an apartheid state there. It's not some segregated thing with special, you know, favoritism for the Jews. Uh, Anybody who was there, there was a lot of people in that, in Palestine, from all over the world, you know, that was there, and they were protected too. And that's interesting on the apartheid subject, 20% of the population in Israel today, people say it's an apartheid state today, that it's just, you know Jews only kind of thing. 20% of the population today in Israel is Arab. And a lot of them move there because they have more freedom there than they do in their Arab countries. They have freedom of religion there. There are Arabs serving in the highest seats of their government. The Supreme Court, Parliament. many Jews, by the way, it's not the other way around, many Jews ended up back in Israel because they were driven out of the Arab nations all around them, from Libya to Iraq to Iran and all these different places. They were forced back there, and then you get mad at them for going back there. But they're granted all the land, including the Transjordan by Britain, who ruled over the land at that time. And so Jews start to migrate back, millions of them start to come back, hundreds of thousands at that point. But ultimately, uh, in 1947, the United Nations General Assembly, which was new at that point, uh, they partitioned the land into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. And the world body at that time said, yep, that's, that works. That works for us. They recognized the need for the Jews to repurn, return in the legality of Jewish aspirations because they are the people of that land. And while the Jews conceded land, they didn't take all that was given to them in the Balfour Declaration. They conceded a lot of their land. They joyfully accepted the proposal made by the United Nations. It was called Resolution 181. Uh, they accepted it and they declared independence. And immediately, as soon as they did, the Arab countries surrounding them went to war. We call that the war of independence, right? All those nations come around, come at them from all sides to try and wipe them off the map. And that's real genocide. But with every war, like the war of independence and the six-day war, the Yom Kippur War, Israel just like the nations come after her, this little tiny nation that has barely, you know, anything to defend herself, and and she miraculously takes more land all the time. When the nations come after her to destroy her, she actually ends up winning and taking more land. However, here's the thing, and that is a legal way to acquire land. It is legal to acquire land that way. However, what what do they do? They rarely keep the land that they take from their enemies they often give it right back to the people who want to destroy them why because they're demonstrating their desire for peace and that they aren't colonial or imperialistic none of their actions in the past demonstrate that they are they've proven it over and over again if israel was imperialistic would they concede the entire transjordan of the balfour declaration would they give back the entire Sinai Peninsula to Egypt and offer Egypt, Gaza as well? By the way, Egypt didn't even want Gaza. And Egypt and Jordan, they say, no, thank you. We will not have any of those Gazan refugees in our country. Because they understand the ideologies that they grew up with. Uh, the terrorism, the fundamental Muslim mindset that wants to establish Shri Elan, why basically make everybody... A, a Muslim, through force. So you want to talk about imperialism, right? Would they offer the Golan Heights back to Syria in exchange for peace? If they were imperialistic? The answer is no. In fact, they completely pulled out of Gaza in 2005 so that the Palestinians could build their own Palestinian state there if they wanted to. And they made the Jews, the Jews actually, since their return, made the Gaza Strip flourish. And this place was, it was, you know, it was paradise. It could be paradise. They they had businesses there, they, they you know, businesses that were up and running and flourishing and prosperous. And the Jews pulled out in 2005, handed all the keys over to the Palestinians, supplying them with water, supplying them with electricity, and what did they get in return? Rockets. Non-stop rockets. And 80% of Gazans actually support Hamas, by the way. just something to think about. But because Israel is not imperialistic, because they give land back, they are in the situation they are in today. Where they're having to go rescue hostages and hunt down terrorists. Terrorists who seek to wipe them off the face of the earth and establish Sh- Sh- Sharia law. Don't forget that, that whenever Muslims become a majority, they institute Sharia law. They will. And what are they doing? They're seeking to infiltrate different around the world, right? Settlements. They settle there. They grow. Take over. It's their plan. And we shouldn't forget that. But there's there's a lot to take away from this and think about, I know, but I just want to bring us back to the gospel this morning. And, and, And the gospel tells us that basically we're all Amorites at heart. We all sin. We're all justly deserving of punishment for our sins. But... Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ who extends mercy and grace to us through his work on the cross, right? And uh, that mercy and grace comes as to us individually, personally, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that today because his kingdom is going to come. Jesus Christ, like we read, is going to break those seals Those seals open up basically the title deed to the earth. And he's going to come, and he's going to vanquish his enemies. He's going to vanquish the squatters, the Satan. And he's going to establish a righteous rule on earth, and you want to be ready for that. The only way to be ready is to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And so if you've, you've trusted Christ uh, uh praise the Lord, but let's also be reminded that we aren't to take His mercy and grace for granted. As we learn from from Judah and Israel, He wants our wholehearted obedience. And in view of His mercy, Paul says, to offer our lives as living sacrifices. And so I just encourage you, if you need to this morning to, uh, to take care of some business with God. Trust in His Son to save you from your sins. Acknowledge your sins before God. Accept Christ. And then if you've done that to, in view of His mercy, give your life to Him in wholehearted obedience. Don't mess around with sin. Take care of business. Repent. Give your life to Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your Word I just, every week, I'm just astounded at how much we can glean from it, even just from a single verse, and how that helps us understand the world today. Your Bible, your word is a gift itself that we should be thankful for because it is a gift of revelation, and without it, we would just be so lost, so confused. And so we praise you for it. Thank you for the truth that is in it, and I pray that it would... Go home in our hearts and minds and change us and transform us. And and we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace in Christ, your covenant faithfulness to us in him, and just ask you to help us to live for you as your sacrifices. And it's in Christ's name we pray. All God's people said, amen.